one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning, because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. Thank you very much, Polly, for reading to us. You might find it helpful to have one John open in the Bibles so that you have uh, the rest of the letter in sight. Um, page 1226. I'm going to pray with uh, the Word of God just having been read to us for God to speak to us. We thank you, Lord, as we gather this morning that in creation itself, the heavens are declaring your glory and praising you, and that voice is heard throughout the world. But we thank you for the greater privilege still that we have with your word open before us, and it is our prayer that you would speak right into the depths of our hearts and minds, and then out into our lives and the message we proclaim. We pray, gracious God, that you would meet with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, my text for this sermon is the point in our Bible passage where what John writes has the force of a command, if I can put it like that. So often, looking for a command, an imperative in a passage, gives you a sense of what the mind of the Spirit is for what our carry-home lesson is. So I wonder if you spotted it as the words were read by Polly. Carson, and I very quickly over those verses on the sheet or in the Bibles and have a look. Where does John explicitly tell his readers what to do or what to avoid? Where's the imperative or a command to obey? I can hear people whispering in the class. It's verse 7, is it? Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray because of course as we've seen there were people in the life of the church then as there are now who easily might lead us astray in fact the temptation for us to stray is so powerful that in that little chunk that we've had just a few verses that little command comes in the middle of a section where you could be forgiven that for thinking that John is repeating himself He gives us, I think, I've analyzed this, the the bad news of the human condition, followed by the good news of the difference Jesus has made. Then comes that warning we've looked at, don't let anyone lead you astray. And because there's a risk that we will be led astray, how does he carry on? Well, just to be sure, he tells us the bad news of the human condition, 
followed by the good news of the difference Jesus Christ has made. John has this tendency in his letter, we've noticed this I think already, to revisit topics, to give his readers a second journey through his material, and a third, and a fourth, or more. Because there is a risk that we will be led astray. There's something inside our makeup which means that untrue teaching will actually be interesting and appealing to us. There is a risk that we will go astray. And being in a church where we like to think we've got good biblical teaching is no guarantee that that won't happen. We need reminding and re-reminding. So the big surprise for us today is I've got two headings, and my first heading is this, the bad news of the human condition, which is unmistakably where our verses, our little section that Polly read to us, began. Verse 4, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. One of the great Victorian writers, uh, Bishop J.C. Ryle, took this as his starting point for his well-known book about holiness. He said, the plain truth is that a right knowledge of sin lies at the root of all saving Christianity. Without it, such doctrines as justification, conversion, sanctification are words and names, he said, which convey no meaning to the mind. In other words, unless we grasp the bad news of the human condition, we'll never really take on board the wonder of the good news of what Jesus Christ has achieved. We've got to dig down very low, he said, if we want to build up high. So what do we learn in verse 4? In just that short verse, we have a window into what lies at the heart of sin. Sin, says John, is lawlessness. And at the early service, I reminded them of how you spell the word sin, S-I-N, with I in the middle. I'm at the center. I'm the center of the universe. I decide what I want to do, and everyone else gets shunted to the side, including God. He cannot dictate laws to me. I'm in charge. Sin is lawlessness. So ponder how the devil tempted Eve back at the beginning of the Bible. If you remember how that first temptation went, Satan began by discrediting God's word. Did God really say, don't eat from the trees in the garden? What a temptation. Did God really say? Because it's so flattering to imagine that God's word is subject to our judgment. Don't you think we like that idea of having the casting vote on what God has or hasn't said? But how can we possibly sit in judgment on God's word like that? You'd have to be God to do that. And that, of course, is the temptation, the essence of sin. Not so much to be a lawbreaker as to be the lawmaker to refuse to allow the God who made me and the God who owns me the option of legislating in his world, to decide myself, I've made a law, that there's no law for me to obey. So sin is first and foremost a relational thing. It speaks of a relationship of rebellion against God. I'm rejecting his right to run my life. It's to do with our attitude before it actually concerns our actions. Now, it seems to me that it's, it's very important to remember this when we're dealing with the typically morally respectable British middle class, which I guess most of us would consider us to be part of. 
Most people, when we use the word sinner, think we're speaking about psychopathic child killers or power-crazed terrorists or dictators. And measured against that standard, most people, I guess, compare pretty favorably. But the analysis of the Bible is different. The analysis of the Bible is that humanity's problem is not so much that we do wrong things, it's that we ever have a heart to do them. It's that we reject God's authority and therefore break his laws. Sin is lawlessness. And even if just in one area I reject God's right to run run my life, still it means that by reserving the right to decide how I'll act in that area, at heart I'm a rebel. I'm a law maker. That makes me the law breaker that I am. At heart, I'm a rebel, even if I choose to stay within his standards at every other point, because coincidentally, that's the way we've organized our sort of Christian or post-Christian culture. And if I'm a rebel against God, even in a nice, British, respectable, middle-class way, I'm shaking my fist in the face of Almighty God. And, of course, there's no way we get away with that. It must inevitably mean we face judgment. He won't let anyone rebel forever. So the bad news really is bad. Okay, says John, don't let anyone deceive you on that point. And our silence on this topic of sin as lawlessness is very dangerous. It appeals to us, of course it does. We hate to be described as rebels against God. But it is the plain teaching of the Bible. And let it be said, it's also the plain teaching of the Church of England. Our formula is the 39 articles say it in very 17th century English, but there's no mistaking what they're saying. This is article number nine. Original sin is the fault and corruption of the nature of every man, whereby is man very far gone from original righteousness and is of his own nature inclined to evil, so that the flesh lusteth always contrary to the spirit, and therefore in every person born into this world it deserveth God's wrath and damnation. The bad news of the human condition is very bad. And I warned you that John circles back to his points, saying similar things in a slightly different way a second time. In our passage, he revisits the human condition, as if to say, I told you it was bad news, It is, only it's even worse than I mentioned before. Just look at the extra angle on the human condition in verse 8. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. That I disobey God and make up my own rules is bad enough, but this makes it worse, because everyone who sins is showing, he says, that they belong naturally to the devil. He is where the lawlessness has its origin. Obviously, because the devil, he says, has been sinning from the beginning. Not that that excuses our behavior. We make our own choices and we are responsible. But we're in the grip of a spiritual power that we cannot shake off. And our situation is therefore quite beyond us to fix. Do you think you can save yourself? Well, the Bible says, think again. Don't let anyone deceive you. The bad news 
of the human condition really is bad. But that in turn makes us marvel at the good news of what Jesus Christ has achieved. And there are two mentions of that in the passage to match the two mentions I've highlighted of the human condition. Verse 5 is one, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. This is the whole purpose of Jesus appearing in our world at all. He came as a human being, the one human being in human history who had no sin, to pay the penalty for human sin, so that we would not need to if we trust in him. He bore our sin, and he therefore carried it right away. So it needn't be punished again, because it has already been punished if we're trusting in him. He was treated as if he had been the lawbreaker when he'd never broken God's law himself. I mentioned the 39 Articles of Religion earlier, the doctrinal standard of the Church of England. To my surprise, I'd forgotten about this, I found that this very passage of 1 John is quoted in Article 15. Article 15, of Christ alone without sin. Christ, in the truth of our nature, was made like unto us in all things, sin only except from which he was clearly void, both in his flesh and in his spirit. He came to be the lamb without spot, who by sacrifice of himself once made, should take away the sins of the world, and sin, as St. John saith, was not in him. But all we the rest, although baptized and born again in Christ, yet offend in many things. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. One of the great German reformers put it like this. Our most merciful father, seeing us to be oppressed and overwhelmed with the curse of the law, and to be so holden under the same that we could never be delivered from it by our own power, sent his only son into the world and laid upon him all the sin of all men, saying, Be thou, Peter, that denier, Paul, that persecutor, blasphemer and cruel oppressor, David, that adulterer, that sinner which did eat the apple in paradise, that thief which hanged upon the cross, and briefly be thou the person which hath committed the sins of all men, See therefore that thou pay and satisfy for them, which Jesus wonderfully did. Why did he do it? Answer, well, out of the most amazing love for us, knowing that we could never satisfy the law ourselves without suffering for it in hell. He loves us, and he didn't want that to happen. Instead, he wanted the right relationship with him to be restored. It's amazing, wonderful news. But it's more wonderful than you might think. Just look at the second run through of what he says. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. It's in verse 8, the end of it. So our supernatural enemy, the great enemy of the human race, has been defeated as well by the cross. The destroyer has been destroyed. Not just sin, but Satan. If you think about it, the devil's fingerprints are on so much of the evil in our world. Our news feeds and our papers are full of bad news stories where the forces of evil are brutal and deceptive 
and violent. And those are the devil's hallmarks. But he has been defeated by Jesus' death and resurrection. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. If we belong to Jesus Christ, we are on the winning side. D-Day on June the 6th, 1944, was decisive in the war against the evil tyranny of Nazi Germany. That was when the invasion force that liberated Europe landed in Europe. That was the bridgehead of the Allied forces' victory. Well, Jesus, appearing 2,000 years ago and dying for sin, was God's invasion force, liberating all his people from the devil's tyranny decisively. So, the good news of what Jesus has achieved. Don't let anyone deceive you. The cross is not a footnote in small print in human history. It is huge. It's earth-shattering, sin-removing, devil-destroying news. Well, it's time for me to conclude. So what, you might be asking. We've seen the badness of the bad news and the goodness of the good news. The conclusion, if I can put it simply like this, is there are only two possible ways to live. And verse 6 expresses it like this. No one who lives in him, Jesus, keeps on sinning. That's one way. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. That's the other way. It will be one or the other. I live in him and I will not habitually keep on sinning. How could I? If sin is so serious, how could I if Jesus' whole mission was to eradicate it? One way or the other way. I continue in sin, which he says shows I haven't seen him or known him. You get the same stark division in verses 9 and 10. Let me reread them. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's sin remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they've been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. If I have God's life in me, if I've been given a new birth and a fresh start, that will show I can't go on sinning as if sin doesn't matter. If God's righteous character isn't in me, Well, I'm not in God's family. In fact, I must be, he says, in the devil's family. Now, you might have a question that's formed in your mind. Hang on, somebody says, John's saying here that the Christian doesn't continue in sin. But he said earlier in his letter, and Article 15 says this, that we all do. Yes, we lapse into sin. But that relationship of being a rebel against God, that law-making as opposed to law-breaking, if I'm reborn, that is over. It's true that some people have twisted the teaching that is found here, that the children of God don't continue to sin, into teaching that sinless perfection is somehow possible in this life. In fact, they hadn't quite reached perfection. John has not forgotten what he wrote earlier in 1 John 
1 and 1 John 2. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. He's not forgotten that. Sinless perfection is just another way of deceiving ourselves. We do commit sin. We do continue to commit sin. But if I belong to Christ, God has done something in me that won't ever be undone. His spirit has changed the core principle of my life. It's not I at the center now, but Christ. A Christ who appeared to take away sin and destroy the devil. He is dead set against sin. And if that is not the settled principle of my life, then I obviously don't belong to him. He's the sin taker and the sin breaker. Clever people may try and persuade us that we can be Christians and still hold on to our sin, but they are wrong. If I can sin lightly and easily, I don't belong to the one whose whole life purpose was to break the power of sin. I must belong to the one who's been sinning from the beginning. And we all know who that is, don't we? So there are only two ways to live. And therefore, which side of the great divide do I find myself on? Am I in God's family or still in the devil's? John is saying, take your time to answer it. Take great care how you answer it. Don't let anyone deceive you. I want to suggest we pray in what we've been thinking about. Um, I'm going to lead us in reading the Colic for Ash Wednesday, which I invite you quietly to say silently if you know it, or just to join with me as I lead us in it. Almighty and everlasting God, who hatest nothing that thou hast made, and dost forgive the sins of all them that are penitent, create and make in us new and contrite hearts, that we, worthily lamenting our sins and acknowledging our wretchedness, may obtain of thee the God of all mercy, perfect remission and forgiveness, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.